Hey, you know what happened today? We had a whiteboard delivered to the office. I got so excited. I was like... It's the little things. It's the little things in life. And there's like, there's actually this really funny um, uh, sitcom. I don't know. It was like a small little series that they did. It was law-based. And uh, there's a moment where um, he gets this big whiteboard out and everybody starts going, murder board, murder board. (laughs) (laughs) And I was thinking, you know, like, I've never worked on a murder case before. Although I did do special effects in the film industry, and so I used to joke about how many hundreds of people I've killed, because I worked on a Western, so there was a lot of carnage going on. But, you know, it'd be like me running around the field pouring uh, fake blood on people or whatever. But you guys have actually done murder cases, so I'm kind of intrigued. What's it yeah. like? What's it like? Actually, that's, well, that's how let, we met. Let's do, yeah, it's true. We, <laughs> it we met on a homicide together. Yeah. Um, but, you know, let, let's take this seriously, because, you know, as we're filming this podcast, there's been a lot of tragedies in Canada with murders, and we've lost uh, people, um, including a police officer and, and civilians, and there's been that horrible stabbing uh, case. So, I mean, you know, we don't make light of it. It's extremely serious, and there's loss of life, and it's incredible tragedies. But um, we've defended a lot of murder cases. Um, Chris and I met on a preliminary inquiry a long time ago involving a murder in a jail. And together we've defended a few murder cases and we have them ongoing. And I think it's important to just say as we get into it that, you know, as a criminal lawyer, but with our belief in a system with democratic principles and proof beyond a reasonable doubt and people are innocent until proven guilty, it doesn't matter what the offense is. And everybody's entitled to a defense. And to a vigorous defense and to the best defense possible because that's what keeps our system healthy, prevents against wrongful convictions, and ensures that we have a check on state power. And that's really important. Well, and, and you know, just on that point too, you know, the, the public is fascinated with true crime stories. They tend to get really, you know, drawn into stories that involve murders, but they also get very passionate about it. And it, a lot of times, you know, um, murder cases that are high profile can end up resulting in lots of calls to bring back the death penalty, um, people wanting to see the, the system you know, have more justice for victims and uh, the the rights of an accused to get thrown under the bus, I think, just as part of the sort of the outrage culture that we live in. So um, so the fact that there have been some serious cases, too, I think it's a good time to talk about, you know, the, yeah. the rights of the accused and, and what the issues that often are you when know you what? go to a murder trial. Before we get into this, and I'm going to ask Chris to take the lead on this, and I'll, I'll ask you some questions, but... You know, you raise a good point, and 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 probably I think I got to speak about this for a moment. So, we, sadly, there's been some horrific, tragic, evil incidents in the last few weeks in Canada, and um, the knee-jerk reaction uh, in media or by some politicians is to say we have a revolving door with our jail system. We have uh, you know insufficient policies about uh, parole or about bail. We need bail reform. It's not the first time we've faced this. And I've been on media the last couple of weeks about it, and I've probably been over-aggressive in my commentary. But um, I think it, it, you know, to some extent, when when that reaction comes out in the public, and, and we have, I was on one show where they were taking questions, and people came on and said, you know, lock them all up and throw away the key. 
and, and other similar comments. And of course we dismiss it because it's, these are not informed individuals and it's not representative of the entire population. That said, it does a disservice to the death and tragedy that, that unfolded. And not every bad thing can be prevented. And I tried to get across that if we have harsher penalties and more harsher um, legislation with respect to bail or longer sentences or mandatory minimums, that just doesn't impact a select group of individuals. It applies to everybody. And, and as we know in this practice, people come to us and go, holy shit, I didn't think this could happen to me or my family member. And it doesn't do anything. And, and, and the reality is we've seen in the United States that in spite of crushing penalties for all sorts of offenses, you know, very strict release uh, provisions, uh, their crime rate has escalated. And, and when we look to other jurisdictions like in the UK or the Netherlands, which have policies and, and legislation very similar to us or more liberal, they have far less crime rates. And our crime rate has been decreasing over the years, although we have a lot of um, gun crimes right now because of trafficking and firearms. These knee-jerk reactions are not helpful and they're counterproductive. And we need more robust policies with respect to, I'll say, funding to police, specialty units, dealing with trafficking of firearms, but also dealing with other issues like identifying youth at risk, families at risk, social programs that help people to get out of gang activity, which we talk about a lot, but there's no funding, much like other things. When our politicians want the quick fix, here's the quick fix. Let's amend the criminal code to have mandatory minimums. Raw, raw, raw. Let's, let's, let's deny bail. Raw, raw, raw. Well, that won't fix the issue. And if you want to look behind it, there's no funding for any of this. Never mind our jail system. Never mind the justice system, uh, which includes legal aid and includes policing. Because they'll tell you their budgets have been crunched year after year after year. So, you know, I, I would just say, and I, I don't know whether I'm going to be criticized or not, but the reality is when they come out and say this, look behind that. Is there anything meaningful being said? And it's not. Well, I liked your point too that the criminals don't go and look at the criminal code to see what the mandatory minimums are. You heard me saying that, yeah. And then and I was saying, oh yeah, because if they did, they might be like, oh, instead of committing a robbery, maybe I'll just attempt a robbery. <laughs> yeah, and again, we're not making light of it, but you know, there's no rational analysis to an irrational, horrific action. You know, you know, some of these offenses are born out of either we have a lot of gang activity that happens, but sometimes there's incredibly irrational, evil behavior. Maybe there's a mental health element to it. They're not opening the criminal code and going, oh, f I could, oh, sh holy, sh I could get life on this. Oh, well, maybe I won't act that way. It just yeah. doesn't happen. Well, the one thing that you start with on pretty much every murder case is a dead body. So you know something happened because you actually Yeah, so what's, you know, what's an anatomy of, of a murder case? What's something typical that you faced? And, and, you know, let's cover for a moment, you know, what are the, the, the key issues in a, in a murder case that maybe in a defense, like identification, self-defense. Talk to us about that. Right. Well, uh, I guess the starting point from for our perspective as defense lawyers is, of course, somebody's called us because they've been arrested so um, or wanted for a murder. So they've already been identified one way or the other by the police as the suspect uh, in a crime. Uh, so... You know, that's the, the first step is, you know, we already have a suspect by the time we get a call. From that, 
Obviously, the most important will be the manner of death, uh, the method. All right. Okay, so we get a call, Chris. Yeah. Uh, somebody's saying I'm, I'm being accused of murder. Do we take the case? 100%. Well, how can you represent somebody who's accused of murder? Because every single person in a free and democratic society like ours is entitled to defense regardless of what they've been accused of, regardless of what they've actually done. It does not matter. That's just uh, a hallmark of uh, Western democratic societies. A hallmark of a free and democratic society. Correct. What's the risk, in your opinion? Because people actually ask this, and we like, sometimes we get vilified for this. What's the risk if we judge our own clients? In other words, okay, we'll take you on, but you know, you, you, we, we can't mount a defense for you right? because well, we think you're guilty. Would we ever say that? Never. It would be, first of all, an ethical violation. It would undermine, you know, we have an adversarial system that divides up between the person who, you know, the state that's trying to put people away or prove the crime, I should say, in a better sense. Uh, the defense whose sole task is to challenge the evidence and challenge the state's case and an impartial third party, which is either the judge or a jury, depending on the matter, who decides it. Uh, the judge and jury have no skin in the game. They don't care. They are there just to call it as uh, the evidence unfolds uh, and as it's challenged by, uh, by the parties. So it, you know, uh, like that old quip uh, about, uh, you know, democracy, it's, uh, uh, you know, it's a terrible system, but it's the best we've got or something of that nature. I can't remember exactly Winston Churchill's quip about it. But it's the same with our justice system. That is, it's imperfect. It doesn't necessarily lead to just equitable results, but it is the best system that we have uh, figured out in terms of arriving at just results. It dates back a few years. <laughs> uh, yeah, just, just a few. Um, so, uh, uh, I actually couldn't tell you the exact date of when uh, it originates, but of course we come from a common law country. Uh, this, you know, European civil law system is quite different in terms of um, the, you know, they have not adopted the adversarial system to the point that we have. Uh, we're quite lucky that we have it, to be honest. Well, sometimes, you know, just to be fair too, sometimes people would actually plead guilty. And so your job is to try and get them the most fair sentence. Look, some clients will say, and, and the evidence will be overwhelming, and you give clients advice. So when, you know, it's up to the client to make a decision about how they want to proceed. We give them advice. If evidence seems to be overwhelming and, um, and options are discussed with a client, the client says, no, I, I want to resolve, that does happen. Absolutely, and, and appropriately so. And if they want to want to do that, we're not going to stand in their way. That's their right, and in many circumstances, that saves a lot of grief for a lot of people. So there's nothing wrong with that. That's the right thing to do when you have a fully informed client who gives those instructions. 
Yeah, with a, an overwhelming case, and, and they, they get some credit for sparing the system and the victims of going through. They do. They do. But, right. but what's important for us to remember as we embark on this discussion, and there's some relevance to our other podcasts, there will be a thread here. We'll get there. But um, it, it's a little bit in tune with what, what I've, I've sensed with respect to comments and, and stuff in the media about how when something tragic and horrific happens, how quick we are to want to give away rights. Yeah. How quick we are to wanting to live in a police state. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, be careful about what you wish for. Because what separates us from closed societies, and we see this playing out in Russia, for example, where, you know, uh, we had a prisoner exchange for Canadians, you know, a little while ago, yeah, the two Michaels, and then there's the, uh, you know, the, the U.S. former Marine and the basketball player. And mm-hmm. these are closed societies where the rule of law means nothing, where it's manipulated for political gain, autocratic power. It's not what we want in a million years. Now, yeah. People actually do get released on bail when they're charged with murder. Chris had several released. Um, I think he set a record recently <laughs> for uh, bail on murder. Let's talk about that, Chris. It's kind of interesting just because there has been some calls over the last few years, and there was very, very close in Parliament to legislation being passed that would deny bail to anybody who's accused of domestic violence. The key is not convicted. Right. Well, if, if if on the second offense, and they got it. Well, what they managed to get was that you're denied. It's a reverse onus to get bail if you've been convicted. So let's explain this for one second. So let's separate this for a moment. So, in a murder case, right? If you're charged with first or second degree murder, you're automatically detained. Okay. So no no joke about that. You're detained. It's up to you to bring an application to the superior court to establish if you could be released. Okay. I'm not going to use the legal terms. You have the onus to prove. That you should be released. Now, what's important about what you're saying is that there was a strong push from interest groups some time ago. Bill C-75 was uh, really the legislation that came into effect was that if there's a domestic-related offense, when you're up for bail, you should be presumptively detained unless you can establish why you should be released. And the compromise was if you're up for your second time, so in other words, you're convicted of one domestic-related offense up for your second domestic related offense, then you have to show cause or establish why you should be released. Is that what you're talking about? Right. Right. And so there's dangers with that because that shifts an onus in a non-murder case um, where um, because of maybe other undertones going on in our system right now, people may be detained because of public opinion. And that's a danger. Well, and also it is an issue in domestic situations that sometimes people will plead guilty so that they can get back to their children and their families again faster. Yeah, we, we, we don't engage in that. Yeah. We, we fire clients if they want to do that. But it's a known phenomenon. Well, it's, it's a known like the deal with the devil is what it was called. There's a, a great article that was written about it. Right, but it, it absolutely has to be fought against. Go ahead. Yeah, it, it's a known phenomenon, not just in the domestic context, but... You know, you will see this most often with indigent clients, people who don't have access to resources, don't have the ability, you know, a social uh, uh, network of people willing to act as their sureties. And, you know, they're offered, okay, well, you, you either stay in custody, maybe it's six months till your trial date, or you plead guilty and you're out tomorrow. So, 
Well, this, this actually contributes to the public perception that wealthy people or people who are in more elite uh, are treated better by the justice system. But they're not treated better. But they have more advantage. Yeah, access to more resources. Well, well look, 100%. we see this playing out across Canada right now and in the UK. I mean, I've been posting on Twitter. It's in Alberta where there have been uh, strikes by the defense lawyers because the legal aid uh, regime is completely underfunded. Right. In in the United Sorry, Kingdom, no. barristers are are screaming and yelling about the chronic underfunding and they the under on strike too. As far yes, as well. and the undermining of the ability to mount a defense for those who are impecunious or do not have the advantages of other people because nobody funds legal aid. And, and that's because the government doesn't care. And that can create wrongful convictions because when people compromise and say, look, I, I can't stay here for four months in jail. I have a family. I got to get out. I'll just plead guilty. A, we won't do that. Yeah. Um, but that's just an underscore of wrongful, wrongful convictions. And... It is an absolute disregard for the robustness that you need for an independent bar supported by a uh, well-funded legal aid system. So that, that was one of my questions about murder cases too. Like, <clears throat> um, is it easier to get legal aid when you're accused of something as serious as murder? Yes, typically, because, <clears throat> you know, it's uh, something... You know, even your the simplest of murder cases is going to be. You know, you'll have a preliminary inquiry that will be weeks long. If you know, it has to be a jury trial. It has to. It has to be a jury trial. There, unless, unless the AG consents to a judge alone, which right. is rare. You know, but the default is it's a jury trial. Uh, it's which well, just to point out for U.S. <clears throat> viewers in Canada, we have a lot more judge alone trials. Right. Correct. We do. But yeah, in the United States, you'll try anything in front of a jury, including impaired driving. I think, and, and to have what they call a bench trial in the United States is insane to them. But but they have robust abilities to actually pick a f jury where in Canada, we just look at somebody and go, oh, okay. okay, first 12 is fine. Whatever. Yeah, actually, yeah. You could be biased. Yeah. We don't know. You can't challenge. No, no. Thank, thank, thank you, Mr. And, Prime Minister. Well, actually, uh, we can't challenge anybody. And Again, they're going to be challenged for cause, but you you can't we can't pick a jury here properly. Again, you know the rule the rule for peremptory challenges was abolished, and I don't expect any better from a conservative government. With because, all due respect, because of one you know one case of an acquittal uh, in uh, Saskatchewan, right? We, we've said this before. So it's f***ing mind blowing how in Canada case. because one case which led to an acquittal with the death of an indigenous young man, which clearly was. There were complicating circumstances, which made it so concerning why the justice minister at the time went to Twitter to right. say that she was disappointed in the verdict, having not actually been at the trial. Listening. Right. Look, let's say optically it was troubling, but you still don't have your justice minister and your, and your prime minister uh, denigrate the jury, denigrate the trial process without having been there, read the transcripts and been part of it, and then wipe out several hundred years of jury selection process in Canada. No, interestingly, wipe the it challenge, out. The challenge to that that actually went to Supreme Court was the accused, the accused was an indigenous person. Was it not? No. No, he oh, was okay. a person of color. Yeah. I, I know there was one challenge because there were quite a few actually until... There the were, but the one that went to Supreme Court of Canada was a person of color. Yeah. Okay. And the Supreme Court said, yeah, sure, no problem. We don't have to have any peremptory challenges 
Well, let the judge vet them. Because the argument at the time was that white people will eliminate marginalized community members. That's bullshit. It's just bullshit. It's bullshit. Crown attorneys did not like this. Okay. And I can't tell you how many jury trials I did prior to this legislation and prior to the pandemic where I would talk with the Crown and the Crown would say, okay, there's somebody there that I don't want on this jury. How about you challenge them and I'll do something for you? You know why? Because we wanted a jury that we thought would be representative of our community, but also able to think through the process, right? So somebody came up and I'm like, you know, with a t-shirt on said, I love weed, f the government. Neither of us would want them. Right. They right. don't take their job seriously. Right. We want, we've always wanted a jury. I've always wanted a jury that was mature, experienced with a diverse experience, both in race and in experience. And, and, and that was not dissimilar most of the time to the Crown. So I rarely had an adversarial process with the Crown about selecting a jury. Never, never was this to try and exclude some identify minority. I, I just, I really don't know that that's any. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, <laughs> uh, back in the days when you could uh, have peremptory challenges, we did have. Can we explain for a moment? Because people won't remember. Okay. What's a peremptory challenge? Peremptory challenge is the defense and the crown had a number of challenges where you didn't have to give a reason. So you didn't, you know, you looked at the, uh, you know, the uh, juror. Uh, and you just said, no, I don't want him on my... Yeah, because there's something about the profession or... Yeah, yeah so, so so we know very little about potential jurors. We know barely a name. Now we don't even know a name. No, you you know a name. A number. They get a number assigned and maybe their occupation. An occupation. That's it. Okay, so that's all you know. And then the juror comes up and, they, and there's this archaic thing. Juror look upon the accused, accused look upon jury. And you... They're allegedly supposed they to look at each other. They didn't do that at the last one. When I, the only jury trial I've been to, they actually didn't do that. Well, they're but, supposed to. They're supposed to. And actually, there's a benefit to that. Because when when I in the Crown used to see a juror, juror look upon the accused. So you're supposed to f***ing look at the accused and me standing beside the accused. And if the juror's doing this, we excuse them. Yeah. F*** you, bye. Because you're not remotely well, interested. Like furtive look. And then look away. <laughs> yeah, they're not, you know, we want somebody who can have the muster to look at us, you know, and want to be part of the process. If they smile at me, even better. I had, once upon a time, I did a, a, a trial. It wasn't a, a murder trial, but it was a jury trial in Newmarket. And one of the prospective jurors was wearing a T-shirt from an organization that is uh, listed as a terrorist organization mm -hmm. here in Canada. Um, Greenpeace? <laughs> not surprising. Uh, the Crown tossed him, uh, and had the Crown not tossed him, I would have. Today, there'd be no basis to toss him. Pause. All right. Pause. Just let's think about that. Because both defense and Crown in that case would have tossed that individual simply because of what they're expressing through wearing that t shirt to court. To court. Okay. Yeah. Literally a terrorist. And we can't do that. Now, a judge may want to do that, but I had, confidentially speaking, I had the occasion to speak to a judge not so long ago after this new regime and said, I hate this new legislation. I don't want to be responsible for picking a jury. I don't want to do that. And if you have a trial before me, Joe, I'll let you pick a jury. This is not something I want to do. This should never have happened. That's a judge. 
in the Superior Court who doesn't want to be responsible for necessarily picking the jury. Good for good for that so, person. So we speaking. know somebody who actually got a uh, jury selection notice, right? Where she has to go and find out if she's on the jury. Actually, my super mom just got one. Ex- oh yeah, yeah. Oh, super lawyers. excited, super excited because she's like wanted to be on a jury for ages and has this idea about how awesome it's going to be. Sit there and deliberate, decide somebody's fate. But it's actually really tedious at times because there are a lot of times where the jury has to leave while they have discussions. It's difficult. The jury's yeah. sitting there in the in the the jury lounge. Not knowing why it is not, not much in of a court. and yeah, it's not very pleasant. And then they'll be told, "Oh, we're going to be about fifteen minutes, maybe an hour later." They're still there, and then they go, uh, "Okay, we're just going to go for lunch." And then, you well, know, okay. it, look, let's look, be careful yeah, about that yeah. because there are there are good legal but, reasons why people thing. have to wait, but and they, they don't know it. But a, ju- a good judge, well, a good explain. trial judge, will explain, and will have a bit of humor and a bit of charisma, and be able to explain it. But it is a very tough job. Yeah. Being a juror is not easy. You're a person who, who does a normal job in life and does other things and is not acquainted with criminal justice process. And that goes on hold to become a judge, a judge of the facts in a criminal trial. God bless them. This is a democratic duty and we support that. But it's hard. It's tough work, which means also we need the ability to have some say as to who makes up a jury. And that's all gone. Now we're a bit off topic. Let's go back to murder for a second. Well, it is a, you know, it is a very difficult job to be on a jury, and it's complicated because it's difficult legal and concepts and highly, highly important. There's a lot of legal concepts that have to be explained. So, like in murder cases, you, you could be charged with first degree murder, and there's included offenses where you could say that they didn't have the mens rea or the intent to plan it out. So it's only they could convict convict of an included offense and all of the the stuff about mens rea has to be tediously explained to them in the church the jury yeah yeah uh yeah absolutely it's uh it's it is quite amazing that we expect uh jurors you know lay people um to listen to a judge because what happens at the end of a case is the defense and the crown make their submissions or I should say closing addresses to the jury. And after that, there are the, you know, the judge's instructions. So a judge talks to the jury. And so the Crown tells the, judge, tells the jury what they should take away from the evidence that they right. heard. And so does the defense. And it, who goes first? It depends. it depends on whether defense calls evidence. If defense calls evidence, they go first. If the Crown goes, if the defense doesn't, then the Crown does. But after the... the then def- the defense does, if you're Joseph, an amazing address to the jury. Okay, okay. It's been a long time. But anyways... Um, <laughs> Explains why they should just discard everything. <laughs> right. But that was when I could actually have a say in picking a jury. But, but, but then the judge gives an instruction to the jury, which talks to them about what the law is, because the judge is the judge of the law, and then comments somewhat on how to apply that to the facts. It can be very complex and go over several hours or several no, no, days. Se- days. Several days. days. The last murder trial I did was, it was a day and a half of just the judge explaining to Where the your jury. was acquitted. Well done. And they were innocent. Yep. Uh, so, <laughs> it, you know, it, it is quite amazing to think that what we go to, you know, three, four years of law school plus bar admission, plus practicing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, jurors are explained the concepts of mens rea, 
uh, the concepts of you know first degree versus second degree versus manslaughter and all sorts of other provocation self-defense everything under the sun which was in my particular case um was, which, was under the category under the sun under the sun <laughs> which was a, you know a very complicated uh ideas they don't get to ask any questions well they 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 can ask questions during deliberation during deliberation um and you know sometimes there are questions they tend to be mostly focused on certain facts evidence uh, you know evidence and they don't get a text how you can use certain evidence can we use this evidence for, for what purposes in a limited uh, way you know yeah. they they, they just complicated stuff too like they, they can't they can't be instruct they cannot be instructed well, leave aside the like record we're getting too complex because yeah. we want anyway. we want to get back on but topic that's the for point a moment is that being on a jury is incredibly complex so it is well, but here's it. the here's the thing and this is what i said before which is why i'm so disappointed that we don't get a chance to now have a real say in a jury selection. Because I think juries do a great job. And I think because they're not lawyers, they do a better job in many respects because they rely on their good common sense, which now in some cases, including sex assaults, we can't rely on. But they rely on their collective common sense about how people ordinarily behave in life. And they have that ability to smell, that doesn't smell right, this doesn't sound right a problem with this yeah. because they rely on their their common knowledge and that is what is the strength of a jury and they are really in a very good position to make decisions about criminal acts or guilt or innocence and i think it's a shame what happened or to or most importantly assessing credibility correct now let me just segue because i know we're running long but I have there, one more thing i want to talk about. one more thing but there's two important things i want to talk about but go ahead um, so in terms of like self-defense and stuff like that, one of the, you know, and, and using common sense, sometimes experts are brought in on unusual topics. And so we were actually okay, good. looking into uh, a case for a different reason, but uh, and it was, uh, I actually have it right here, um, a, a kind of an interesting case involving battered woman syndrome. And uh, let me just see what year it was, 1998. So this is from quite a while ago and it was not too long after the first case was uh, lively in Canada. I was a lawyer for five, six years at that time. I think 91 I'm was dating the myself. <laughs> I was not a lawyer. But uh, so this case. Young was, one. There's a comment in here which was relevant to the case that, that we're putting together right now with an expert. But. Um, yeah, we're bringing, an we're bringing an application for expert evidence for battered husband syndrome. Yeah, essentially. I but know. anyways, leaving that aside. The, from what I can tell, the first time I haven't, I haven't found first that time I haven't found it. Yeah, and we're gonna so, win the application. And, and we're using a quote from one of Laura Debay. Laura Debay, and it's actually always intriguing to me when it's I a good, it's a good to quote. quote her. But um, which, which I'll, I'll read in a second. But so battered woman syndrome first is not a defense, and in this case, it was a murder case. She had. Um, so I'm talking about the difference between like the actual self-defense. And what better the role battered woman syndrome plays well self-defense is a defense to anything like an assault attempt murder or murder you're using necessary force to defend yourself yeah if you or a family member is at risk could even be property or you have a legitimate concern that you're at risk a reasonable expectation you're about to get yeah. over and hurt yeah. you know you you can repel force reasonably and in certain circumstances depending upon the force being used it can result in death and so long as the force is reasonable in the circumstances, self-defense is a defense. So in, in the first case that happened, um, 
it had to be explained to the jury by an expert. They determined it was required because she shot the uh, her her partner in the back of the head. He was clearly leaving the room. And so you'd be like, well, he's leaving. So you obviously didn't, force was not required. But they had to explain the syndrome and why it was she believed that he was not actually leaving and he might come back and kill her. So um, then in this case, it was kind of interesting because this individual, this, this woman, she was, it was established very severely abused, but her partner um, had moved in with another girlfriend and she was still living at his mother's house or whatever and she was still involved in his life. And so on one occasion when she had arranged to get her in the car with him and go off on a, on a mission um, to pick up some sort of drugs or whatever, she packed a gun, broke into a case, loaded She being it. the accused. The accused is the, is the woman. She loaded a gun, um, ended up emptying six rounds into him in the car, reloaded the gun, then walked to a taxi stand, caught a taxi to the trailer park and tried to kill his girlfriend. So she was charged with attempted murder because unfortunately she managed to shoot the girlfriend in the head and then the gun didn't work and so she grabbed a knife and stabbed her in the face and a bunch of, it was a pretty horrific attack yeah, yeah but the um girlfriend managed to get the knife away and defended herself sufficiently enough to get out of the trailer at which point the accused then called the police and told her that she had shot her husband and um told them where she was and asked them to come get her she was having some mental issues basically a breakdown so the battered woman syndrome gave her access to self-defense, but clearly when she decided to get in a taxi and go kill somebody who was not threatening her, she didn't have access to that defense for that particular crime. But um, we ended up wanting to talk about the abuse that one of our clients went through as a male. But hold on. So but yeah. people are going to be hanging on that. So, yeah. you know, so the battered partner syndrome if somebody's subjected to a chronic habitual abuse where they're at fear for their life, threatened that they're going to be killed, etc., that will be prominent in their mind. It doesn't have to be necessarily temporal or proximate where they kill the, the other spouse who's threatening them because it has a psychological impact. You may fear that you're perpetually uh, going to be killed. But once it goes to a third depending upon the remoteness of that, and then if it's another party who has nothing to do with it, you very well could be liable for an attempt murder or if, if, the, if it's, you're successful in killing the person, murder. You're trying to tie this into where we're arguing that... Well, you brought up an interesting point actually about cases where you have somebody who's a victim of an attempted murder. And in this case, that, uh, that woman did testify and she had to be cross-examined. Yeah, so I, I think what I was trying to tie it into, and, it, and it's a good point. So I think what we want to focus on, I know we're running long, but there, there's a real point to what we're saying, okay? In an attempt murder case, you could even have a case where there's, let's say, the, the victim or the complainant is a spouse. The accused is the other spouse. And it's a stabbing, seven stabs, whatever went on. That was like a psycho move. Right, 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 Well, it's Halloween's right, coming up. You, you've got it. <laughs> It's just the angle of the stabbing. <laughs> Mike Myers, Halloween. Okay. But um, rules of evidence is what I wanted to get to. Okay. So this is... You mean the disconnect between... Uh, uh, that's a, such a polite way of putting it, Chris. <laughs> you are just such a polite man. Yeah. yeah. So you have an attempt murder. Let's take a domestic attempt murder. A husband allegedly stabs his wife seven times because he thinks she's cheating and there's been a lot of communications between them about her saying, F you, you're your piece of shit, 
I'm going to be with whoever, and there's all sorts of other messaging. I'm getting great stuff on the Whatever. Side. But, Whatever the, but the accused says that there's some messages which are relevant as to state of mind, maybe provocation, right. maybe all sorts of other that that may or may not apply. But what's the rules of evidence about this in an attempt murder case where the spouse is the victim and they've been stabbed? But what's the rules of evidence? I I'm can just I'm just curious. Can you, can you just tell me? On? Can you just tell me if you have records in your possession as an accused? Can you use them? Like it, can you just it, it may, it may on there, surprise even if a sexual nature. Like, well, like example use. well, well, sexual nature is a little different. Um, Not an intent no. murder case. <clears throat> if she's having an affair, you can bring in all the evidence right. of the affair. Um, now, what what it means is that you can use your evidence that you have collected without having to ask the judge permission. What? Yep. Are you telling me? That if you're charged with attempt murder of your wife and you have records in your possession, you can actually deem yourself what's relevant and ask questions without vetting it by a judge? I, 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 I would prefer oh you, my God. you because, not. Because why? Uh, well, I'd prefer you not bring this up because next thing you know, it'll be changed and we'll have to uh, vet everything. Um. Mr. Prime Minister, please just give us a year or so to adjust to this, okay? <laughs> Why can you use it? Uh, well, you can use it because well, it can. Was I overly dramatic on that one? Credibility when or reliability? You, why is it surprising? When can you not use it? Oh, uh, because when it's not f relevant. Like when it's not relevant, you don't no. use it. If no, you're no. a moron as a lawyer, you don't ask the question you about it. When you you need to get permission if the allegation is that you committed a sexual assault. So. Or an any, enumerated crime of a sexual nature. Any other offense of a non-sexual nature. Slow. Explain this for the camera. So, any other offense. So, murder, uh, you know, assault, um, choking, uh, attempted murder, anything of that nature, you can use... Aggravated assault. Aggravated assault. Forcible confinement and aggravated assault. Assault with a weapon, discharge firearm, all of those things. You can use the evidence that you have in your possession. In your possession, including messages, messages, pictures. any yeah, any record you want, without having to have a judge vet it, without having to provide a copy to the crown to the prosecutor, without having the complainant uh, a heads up on get it. a copy of it, get you know their own lawyer. To, Not just the seeing the stuff. evidence you want to use, but yeah. in these applications on sexual crime accusations, we have to tell them how we intend to use them. Exactly. You don't have to do any of that for the most serious defenses. Mm -hmm. All right, I think we're running well, time over just, here, so we got to end it up. But, but there, was, yeah. there was a paragraph there that we used from this case that um, that Let's was fascinating. So Justice Lehrer uh, Dubay, along with Justice McLaughlin, wrote... Dubay. Uh, my accent sucks. My focus on women as the victims of battering and as the subjects of battered woman syndrome is not intended to exclude from consideration those men who find themselves in abusive relationships. However, the reality of our society is that typically it is a woman who are uh, it is women who are the victims of domestic violence at the hands of their male intimate partners. To assume that men who are victims of spousal abuse 
are affected by the abuse in the same way without benefit of the research and expert evidence, opinion evidence, which has informed the courts of the existence and details of battered woman syndrome, uh, syndrome would be imprudent. Okay, stop. Don't experience it in the same way. Okay, so you're right. So stop. Let's, let's sort of wrap this up because we're running long. This has been interesting. So one takeaway is in every other offense under the Criminal Code of Canada where you have a complainant, which may be a wife or a girlfriend, other than sexual assault or sexual related offenses, sexual assault, you don't have to disclose records in your possession. Correct? Correct. Okay. And a victim of an attempt murder who's a spouse may be as much vulnerable and traumatized as somebody in a sex With assault horrific case. With horrific physical damage. And right. And yet we haven't amended that yet, Justin. But um, that's insane, in my opinion, because there's this incredible juxtaposition and imbalance of, of political correctness with respect to this offense versus others, where, where, where clearly a victim of an attempt murder is in an equally traumatic, if not more, situation. Now, you foreshadowed where in murder cases we have these defenses, sometimes for women, justly so many times, with respect to a battered spouse or battered partner. To understand their state of mind. To understand their state of mind. And in a case we have, we have a male in a case, we're not going to say what, where we have very solid evidence of being manipulated and abused psychologically and partially physically that we're advancing. And we'll see if the court will accept this expert evidence. And if they don't, it's a clear inequity in our system. So we'll see, and we're gonna pause on that. But this is a really good point. And, and thank you for raising it. Murder board, murder board. <laughs> All right, murder like, okay, I'm not, I'm not so <laughs> joyous about it, but you know, thank you. Like, subscribe. Tweet. Yeah. Hit notification. Could you please, if you like this sh like it, subscribe to leave it, comments. and share it. Leave comments that are only share nice on about it. Media. There's some asshole who keeps calling me a clown. Could he go bye-bye and somebody else say nice Thank you. Okay, I'll stop. I'll stop. I'll stop. Stop. It's not you. It's not you. <laughs> Good night. Good night, everybody. <laughs>